You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. Joined today on HeadX by a new co-host in Sue Kakonis of OES. Welcome, Sue. Glad to be here, Martin. It's really nice to have you on this podcast with me, and I'm so pleased to have been working so closely with you and other colleagues in OES over so many years in the development of HeadX. I'm really pleased that you're joining me to co co-comment on and co-host an episode of the podcast today. And um I think this is a really interesting opportunity for for me, Sue. I don't know about how you're feeling, but an important time of reflecting on what's been learned since, you know, I first met you in the middle of a pandemic when um, we wrote an op-ed together and I spoke with your CEO about where OES was seeing the the world then. I I think since all of the moves that were made to online education in the pandemic, which, of course, you and OES were so well prepared and positioned for with your university partners. The advancements in technology have only speeded up towards a, I don't know how you see it. Is it I, you came up with a really nice expression of it, it wasn't hybrid. I can't remember what your expression was of the variation on a hybrid mode of learning into a future. But um, the combination of online and on-campus learning just seems to be coming more and more of where we're, what we're all heading towards. Is that is that what you're thinking? Yeah, it's definitely what we're seeing. And I think you're referring to high flex. And as much as I would love to own that term, Martin, actually, I was just quoting uh, someone else who had who had coined that term. But it, it, it really is talking a little bit like an omni-channel system where, whereby you can be asynchronous or synchronous um, and you blend online and on campus um, in, in a really nice hybrid fashion. Well, I'm sorry if I attributed high flex with you, Sue. You were the first person that I'd heard it from. But you've just used the expression omnichannel, and that's not the first time that I've heard that expression. We'll um we'll maybe hear a little bit more about what that means and the importance of that for the future of higher education for our guest today. I, I I'm taken by how much there's such a range of higher education institutions where I've spent all my life. Um, including very prestigious institutions, are now extending into ventures with some really quite exciting corporate ed tech companies. I wonder how you feel about how that compares with your personal journey moving from Swinburne to OES over mm, recent mm. years. Yeah, I think we're seeing a real blurring in the lines between uh, universities and technology companies, or maybe blurring of the lines isn't the correct. Um, great partnerships. Um, And I think it's about being able to combine what universities do really well, which is that fantastic critical thinking, deep analysis, and then marrying that with a more entrepreneurial culture that might not be as bounded by um, kind of long-standing convention, much more opportunities for to, to pilot things and to try things. So I'm seeing a really nice melting pot happening between the two, and that's very much been my journey. I I was, I was came from academia, um, and 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 I loved that experience. But being able to move into an edtech sort of service company definitely took the shackles off a bit in terms of of enabling us to to think and experiment in a in a lot of areas. 
And that's so much the story of, of OES, really, Sue, isn't it? That um, here you are as a hugely successful now company in the in the space of of helping universities, not only in Australia, but in um, in the UK as well as uh, as I know, and I think in other parts of the world as well. On that journey towards, whether it's a journey towards omnichannel, we might reflect on that after we've heard from our guests, but it's certainly a, a journey towards that combination of new tech-enabled online programs with very conventional on-campus programs that they've had much more of their own experience of delivering. Is, is that the journey that OES is still on to continue to assist universities with these transitions? Yeah, I think the big areas, though, that we're seeing um, occurring is definitely, I think, the technology acceleration. Generative AI is the game changer. And I think, you know, we're going to hear a lot more about that from Anne in a moment. We will yep. hear a fair bit more from that um, from our guest today, Sue. And look, maybe that's a lovely segue for me to say that straight after the break, when we hear some words from our sponsor, we'll be having a guest in Anne Kirshner, the interim president of Hunter College, the City University of New York College for the Humanities, where she's making her journey from having been involved in advising lots of edtech environments to leading an academic venture in a major university at scale. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's guest on HeadX is Professor Anne Kirshner. And Anne is a graduate of the US universities of Buffalo and Virginia and also has a PhD from Princeton. She was a Whiting Fellow in the Humanities in Princeton and she's also been an executive of five different tech startups, including one of the first online learning companies um, called Fathom. And she started Fathom in her time at Columbia, working as a staff member at Columbia, with the then provost of the university, somebody called Michael Crow. She sits on and has served numerous boards, including the Management Committee of EdPlus at Arizona State University, where she was also a special advisor to that Michael Crow in his role then and now as the president of ASU. Many of us will know ASU as having been rated the most innovative US university for the last nine years running. And the subject of innovation in higher education um, is something that Anne writes about often. And, and since July, she's not just been writing about things, she's been doing them on the ground, leading a major institution as the president of Hunter College, which is part of the City University of New York. And a very warm welcome to the HeadX podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm delighted that you can be here. I'm delighted that someone that's got such a distinguished academic and leadership career at some of the finest and now most innovative of universities, and also such a, a pedigree of working with companies in this space. And I just, I wonder if just in starting the interview, can you tell us a bit about your, your personal background and journey? And what has set you on this path of being so involved in innovative leadership in our sector? And what continues to drive you to do the work that you do? 
when I when I think back uh, about uh, what has what has brought me to um, my current age and professional uh, endeavors, I I see education. I see the green light of education at every at every step of the way. Um, I'm from an immigrant family. Um, my mother came to the United States. Uh, she was a Holocaust survivor who married my dad, an American GI came to the United States without a word of English and no formal education to, to speak of, um, and learned English when I did uh, in the New York City public schools. So, you know, so so the first springboard was the New York City public schools, um, which of course are, are free. Um, and the, the second springboard was, was public education at the University of Buffalo and at University of Virginia, um, both of which were either close to free or free because of uh, various forms of either state or philanthropic support. Um, and again, there were just green lights um, at every at every stage of the of my of my journey. Um, and so um, universities uh, and their role in society as engines of of innovation and change, um, strike me as um, you know, just incredibly important um, and positive uh, forces for for change. And I feel like I've experienced all that firsthand in in my own life. That said, um, I have felt increasingly uh, for the last you know, call it twenty years or so, that the engine is slowing down, and that the the sense of upward mobility through education, which is at the heart of the American dream, uh, really the global dream of, of education, that we we weren't nearly as successful at that uh, as we as we used to be. And so I see myself as a student of higher education. Um, you know, I have I have relationships with public institutions, the City University of New York, University of Virginia, Buffalo, where my degrees are, Arizona State University. Um, I also uh, am, a, am a, a proud alum of Princeton University. So private, uh, private education is something I, I know well. And then I had an extended stint as a board member of Apollo Education, which was the parent company of University of Phoenix, um, a for-profit uh, education company, and and I have sat on boards for educational technology companies. So I feel like I'm in a very small Venn diagram mm -hmm. of of public, private, for profit um, companies and organizations and institutions that are all focused on the same thing, which is um, you know innovation and advancement through education. And and I wrap all that up by saying that um, there is no one perfect way. There is no one path, <laughs> no one path to enlightenment, no one path to, to education. We kind of need it all to succeed and they serve different kinds of, of students. Um, so, um, so I would say it's the role of education in my own life um, that, has, uh, that has been my sort of North star uh, for, for how I've conducted myself. Wow, what a fascinating um, explanation of the purpose that drives you and some of the stops along the way so far in the journey of trying to realise that purpose. And um, without going back through all of the history, one of the things that caught my eye, as well as some of those recent activities that we'll come on to soon, 
was your early foray into a pioneering online learning company that you launched, as I said in the introduction with Michael Crow. It was a collaboration with your employer at the time, Columbia University, as I understand it, with partners in the London School of Economics, the British Library, the New York Public Library, Cambridge, Univer Cambridge University Press and the Smithsonian. What a collection of partners. And um, I mean, I, I wonder how you find looking back at that early step and how much it's a part of the steps that you've gone on to take and describe to it. How you find traversing the balance between institutions of great public profile and reputation and shiny new ventures seeking to pursue innovative and transformational purposes in what are sometimes very traditional ways of work and areas of work in a traditional sector. How do, how do you traverse that balance? Whoa, there's a lot. There's a lot in that question. Um, uh, I it has been my pleasure to be associated with some of the most uh, respected brands. I'll call them brands um, in the world of uh, of education and and culture. Um, they all had one thing in common, which was they all saw that the horizons of how they uh, interacted with their constituencies, their audiences, their uh, their customers, um, the people they served, that those horizons were changing. And they were changing because the world was changing. And one of the key factors in how the world was changing was was technology. and and so, um, since no no institutions want to be marginalized, the question is, how do you remain relevant in a world where where knowledge uh, is at your fingertips um, and is no longer confined to the four walls of a of a classroom? Um, so I was minding my own business uh, at the National Football League, um, but I was already dreaming about how, the internet um, would uh, would have an impact on my first love, which was education. Um, when I was lucky enough to meet Michael Crow at uh, at Columbia University, who was struggling with the question of what does it mean to be a university in the digital age, and so out of that came the idea for Fathom and the idea of how could you um, how could you take those traditional values of knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination, and then use technology to reach, to reach new audiences. And as we built our consortium, we looked for institutions that were struggling with that same question. Um, and we eventually found uh, a wonderful bouquet of them. <laughs> bouquet indeed. And um, that was, uh, that was those times, and um, we've moved on a fair way since then in some respects, but maybe not in others. And I, I said in the intro that you write about innovation and the future of higher education, and you do so from now again being embedded in uh, one of its very prestigious institutions. One of your pieces from a year ago in your writing posed the question, are universities on the wrong side of history? And it was responding to some data-driven observations of what was being described as existential crisis confronting U.S. universities from disruption that you commented on it being still inspired by some of Clayton Christensen's observations from a little while ago now. Um, in that piece, you surfaced some really stimulating ideas from a book that looks back, looks at now, and looked into the future of universities written by 
Levine and Van Pelt called The Great Upheaval. And I wonder if you can, this is another one of those big questions, Anne, sorry about this. Um, what are some of those ideas that that book put forward? And what is the great upheaval that you and they think we're in the middle of right now? I highly recommend that book. Um, I think I think the authors have put together in the great upheavals some of the uh, important ways to look backwards, forwards uh, around around education. Um, and uh, for me, it was a, a great uh, summary of of what I think we are facing today, which is um, a public uh, public lack of confidence uh, in higher education. Uh, in the value of higher education, in the cost of higher education, in the bridge between higher education and the rest of our lives, that is our, our professional careers, um, and in not building solid enough bridges between what we learn in the classroom and then and then what we need uh, for the for the rest of our our lives. Um, and there were a number of different observations that that came out that I thought were were really just in, incredibly important. I mean, I, I feel a little bit like Cassandra because I feel like I've been I've been harping on these ideas for, you know, more than more than 20, 20 years. Um, but I really, really believe that at this point we we have writ we have we have hit that inflection point. Um, and 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 I'm really sure because I believe that COVID was one enormous factor, you know, see it as kind of a right hook to higher education and changing how we think about classroom learning. And now along comes AI, which is to me sort of the the uh, the other uh, the other side of the face taking it taking it in because with with those two factors, we see for the first time how technology can be, an accelerant and a and a and a uh, a wonderful source of customized personalized learning in a way that hasn't been possible before. Now, of course, in the great upheaval, um, uh, Arthur Levine's book, he didn't contemplate this because ChatGPT had not been unleashed on the world yet. Um, but now it has, and and the essence of you know what? What really has transformed? Uh, now I'm going to go off on AI. Sorry, um, but what has really what has really changed that is that for the first time we have a technology where you don't have to go buy something new. You simply have to enter a question, and to me this is a profound turning point and really um, a an affirmation of not only higher education generally, but I would say the liberal arts specifically, because it's all about asking good questions. Hmm. And the better the question you ask, the better the answer you're going to get. And this is something we try to do in the classroom. We try to say, do you have any questions? We try to you know, pose um, questions as educators that will elicit discussion. We're not always successful, but we understand that the, the essence of education is, is that curiosity and that ability to, uh, to, to, write a, to write and think with a good, with a good question. So, um, so I think that um, the, um, the turning point that we're facing is one that is, um, is fueled by, first of all, um, the sense that we have lost our way 
not completely. I'm not saying that people, lots of people don't go to college, get a great education, get a great education and go on to have great careers, but not in the numbers that they used to. And, uh, and clearly every survey you read demonstrates this eroding public confidence in, in higher education. So on the one hand, you have that problem and the, the problem of the business model and the lack of sustainability in how we're going about education these days. And then on the other hand, you have the you have on the horizon technologies that are going to potentially lower the cost of education um, and potentially improve it. Yes, there are dangers, but there's also the the optimistic case that they will they will improve them. And if you're a student of Clay Christensen's, this is the classic innovators dilemma, where a, a big shift will create lower cost ways of doing things. They may not be as good as the first one, but let's face it, we are already failing thousands, millions of students who are starting the road towards college and then not finishing. So that dire prediction that, you know, if we don't, we don't do it well, students will already suffer. Well, guess what? They are already suffering. So, so I think this really is an important turning point. Well, there you go. You, you've been, um, going on about this for 20 years you say I, I think um I've been going on for it with this podcast for a little while through that period of left hooks and right hooks that you referred to and I don't know where um where any of us are left standing if we are still standing after those two two hooks but a second of your written pieces claimed that you know maybe thinking about how we stand up again and move on that the future of higher education is going to be omni-channel Mm. wonder mm. what you would describe as what an omni-channel university is and why it is an important way forward through the upheaval we're currently going through. So the notion of omni-channel comes from retail, uh, retail sales. You can buy online or you can go into the store and shop. And the company doesn't really care which one you do. Uh, at the end of the day, you're going to get you're going to get what you uh, what you asked for, what you what you wanted to to purchase. We have segregated online learning and in classroom learning um, in in pretty severe ways. Um, even even colleges that have very large online programs tend to start with the uh, the the fork in the road. Do you want to do you want to study online or do you want to study in the in the classroom the notion to me of omnichannel is I, I want you to tell me I, I the educator want you to tell me what suits your lifestyle your uh your family situation your uh your your time um and your druthers what sort of a learning uh what sort of a learner are you and and so i i shouldn't really care whether you're taking the course online or in the classroom, I should be prepared to meet you as the educator to provide you with the education that you need. And maybe half of your classes are going to be taught online and half of them are going to be taught in the classroom. And you should be able to seamlessly move between them. The problem is that there's lots of structures, um, some financial, some systems oriented that are are currently getting in the way of that sort of a fluid um, movement between online and and classroom and and that's what I mean by by omnichannel. 
that idea of it being the choice of the student rather than the um the offer mm. of the provider it makes me think about the the news that i heard from last year in the us i think it was last year maybe it was this year i can't remember now about the decision made by the university of california system that in response to observed patterns of behavior of its students during the pandemic and since to find a way of being able to gain online degrees and awards from the the university that you, you, i'm sure you'll be able to tell me what exactly the policy was and where it's up to with more precision than than my memory or interpretation from afar will say but that university of california is now precluding the possibility of degrees being awarded to its students for fully online degrees is that right and sounds like the opposite of omnichannel it's the opposite of omnichannel and it's um it, it frankly inexplicable to to me it points in exactly the wrong direction um you know it, it they're not alone in thinking that uh that online is somehow less rigorous um when there's plenty of uh, of uh academic um and uh and very well done research that demonstrates the that you not only can learn online but that some things are better learned online than uh than, than in a than in a classroom so it it strikes me as headed precisely in the wrong direction um you saw many colleges after covid um, reverse direction. They were all very happy to go online when they absolutely had to and to continue taking full tuition from their students. And then when uh, when COVID abated, um, they forbade their faculty from teaching online. Have we learned nothing? Have we? I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it, to me, it's, it's, I, I, I just I just don't I don't understand that resistance to change. And I think it is um, it is the uh, what do we want to call it? The canary in the coal mine. It is the it is that rigidity uh, to change that I believe is one of the factors that, uh, again, going back to the to the book, The Great Upheaval, one of the areas that they signal out we have to have a an opportunity for exploration for um for experimentation all the good things that faculty members do in their own research and their own scholarship they strike out in in new territories you know to to build new knowledge all of that then gets put on the wayside when it comes to pedagogy and their life in the classroom, which I, I mean, again, I'm painting, I'm painting faculty with a broad brush and I shouldn't because many faculty are in the forefront of how to use technology um, to improve pedagogy and serve their students. But I, 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 I think they are, uh, they are not the majority. So let's let's um, switch this a little bit and think on the positive side a bit because um, you you ended your second piece on the future being omnichannel with a call for more examples of universities that had made adjustments to their policies and processes to serve students in the way that the omnichannel university would, and you've spent. Um, a lot of your time at a place, Arizona State University, both on the Ed Plus Management Committee and a special advisor to Michael Michael Crow, the president. How far down the track of being 
on the right side of history as an omni-channel university do you believe ASU is? And what other examples, if there are other examples, would you now say that we would look to as what are emerging as omni-channel universities? Um, it's, it's a short list. Um, I, I haven't seen too many examples. Um, and, uh, you know, even, even at a place like Arizona State, the, the structural obstacles to being completely fluid between online and, and on ground um, are, are serious. That said, um, there's no other university I know of that has embraced innovation the way that Arizona State has. Um, and it's something I'm thinking a lot about here at the City University of New York uh, and at, at Hunter College, which is the 24,000 uh, students um, college within within the state within the city University of, of New York. Um, we need we need safe places for innovation. We need um, we need people who are charged with thinking about change in the university in in positive ways. Um, too often we hear, I'm doing it this way because that's how we, we've always done it. And, um, you know, I've often been accused of loving change for the sake of change. Um, you know, maybe maybe to a certain extent I am, I am guilty of that, um, but I never want to do things the same way. I always want to think about how can we do it better? bigger, faster, slower, if that's better. Um, but, you know, learning something, again, we're learners, learning something about how we did it last time surely should set us up to do it better the next time around. Um, so I think that the creation of Ed Plus within the university structure was a, a brilliant way to say this is going to be this is going to be the place for experimentation. This is going to be the place for exploration, um, and and we in academics, uh, you know, we we don't we don't like to fail. We don't like to get the F, right? We always we always want to get the A, and and sometimes you can't play it safe and introduce change at the at the same time. And so, having a place that uh, that experiments and then begins to think about how you can scale those areas that are successful. I mean, Ed Plus now serves tens of thousands of, um, of online students, um, but it didn't start out that way. It started out as a small and experimental unit. So what, how are you starting out in um, this different phase? Then you've been advising and facilitating and been on boards and writing about and connected with some fantastic universities, brands, you called some of them. Um, and now you're finding yourself president of a major college in the CUNY system. And you've got the ability in that role to step beyond supporting and advising others of what they should do in the light of what you make of the literature and what's going on, to now lead those steps and decisions yourself. Well, I, I wonder, armed with all of this experience and insight and drive and purpose and passion, what is your ambition at the start of your presidency for how you're going to bring all of that and those beliefs to bear on the, I'm sure, I, I don't know your college and your university well, but I'm sure it's got a, 
a complex community and set of stakeholders and a history? And how are you going to bring what you believe in and what you know to that history and complexity to ensure it pursues a strategy and direction that means that you can be sure it's going to end up on the right side of history? Well, you've you've put your finger on uh, what brought me here and um, and sort of the scary part of uh, this transition to uh, to actually uh, walking the walk and talking the talk of of a college president. Um, and that is, you know, as an advisor and sitting on boards and, you know, all that stuff, um, you, you have your opinions, you give your advice, um, but there's no accountability at the end of the day. You know they they do what they want to do, um, and you go back to um, advising on the on the next project. Um, this is different um, because you know the buck stops here, um, and that's really what drew me to say yes um, when I was asked to do this. Um, was the was the feeling that um, it was maybe a little too easy, a little too pat for me to be able to sort of sit back as an advisor and pontificate and um, and bloviate about, you know, this this is what you should do, whatever, um, and and not have to take responsibility for my actions. Um, so now I now I am I am under the hood of the of the college. You know, I'm I'm driving the car, um, and it is it is indeed very different. Um, I, I came in um, and within the first couple of months had a had a pretty clear notion of of what I wanted to accomplish. You know, being an interim gives you a certain clarity of what you have to do, um, what you would like to do, and what you absolutely should not touch at all. Um, and and also it gives you a a, a new constituent um, in addition to the to the students and the faculty and the donors and the alums and the elected officials and all the rest. There's this nameless, faceless person who's going to be the next president of Hunter College. What are the things I need to do to get this place in the best possible shape so that the college doesn't miss a beat and is ready to you know move on. Um, if anything, at a more rapid pace when the when the permanent president arrives. Um, so you know, so there were things that um, that I was uh, really sure that I would focus on. Um, they included uh, a, a a fresh look at um, at serving students with uh, that bridge between the classroom and careers, um, unleashing innovation. Um, working with faculty to make this campus as entrepreneurial as as it could be, um, and then you know there's the famous uh, Mike Tyson quote: "Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose." Um, and I would say that um, you know in the recent uh, in the recent global events uh, that started on October seventh in in Israel, um, you know the the world got punched in the in the nose, and so. Um, my priorities have have shifted. Um, I have to think about what it means to lead a highly diverse campus. 72% of our students are students of, of color. They come from about 180 different countries. They speak 100 languages. They are, uh, many of them are immigrants or, or children of immigrants. Um, and while they are very focused on their education, they are also living through 
a you know a, a tumultuous time about which they have very strong opinions some of them so um so i would say that whatever were my um my priorities they've kind of been uh squeezed a little bit to make room for this new um this new and very pressing moment of how to navigate this and to um and to serve the full range of the diversity of this community well, I'm sure we all um, empathise with with you in that complex situation, and with everyone leading and experiencing such um, such challenging times at the moment. And um, I, 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 I'm sure we all hope and wish that we can move on from that to a period where the other priorities that we've talked about at the early part of this podcast can be things that take up more of our time and become more of an opportunity to bring great benefit to the world's populations through those transformational effects of education that you outlined at the very start of this interview as being what drives your purpose and has set you on this journey. And trying to anticipate us in that situation, and with either you still as interim president of Hunter, or I can remember um, being in a meeting with you, I think, a little while ago, where someone said, aren't all presidents interim? Um, <laughs> so I don't think you get off the hook by um by by you know giving yourself the title that we could give to everybody with the realities of leadership but with your breadth of knowledge of various US universities with your great insights into startups and the tech companies in the learning field what would be your advice for all of our global university leaders and to those leaders in corporate settings about how they might approach this great upheaval that we're going through and what the value is the, in them working together in partnership to find the right way forward to that omni-channel or, or other solutions to the great upheaval that we're experiencing. How might leaders of universities and, and other corporate partners to universities lead when we can get our focus back on the great upheaval and the response to it? Um, well, first of all, I, I want to just make it clear that the the work of an academic institution goes forward, um, global upheaval or no global upheaval. It's um, it's just it's just adding one more priority to the the range of activities at it at a college. But we're we're not going to stop teaching. We're not going to stop uh, learning. We're not going to stop research. Um, you know, I think that. Um, what I'm seeing here is that the ideas for how to move a college forward are all around us. Um, you just have to really listen. You have to listen to students. You have to listen to faculty. You have to listen to staff. The ideas are there. Leadership is that act of listening and then making room for, for experimentation and change, embracing change, learning from failure, um, and then building on successful new models. I think a leader who is continually asking those questions of, how, what are you learning from how we've done this before? How are we doing it differently from how we did it before? What's new and exciting in the way of, of 
technologies or other other handmaidens to to change that we might experiment with here. I think the cultural imperative to innovation has to be the the uh, the the north star of the institution. And when it comes to thinking about what the relationship with companies might be, I think that the time is ripe for a, um, a a new dialogue between what people need to know in the workplace and what they are learning in the in the classroom. And this can happen. This can this can manifest itself in lots of different ways. You know, today's in today's workplace. You know, the 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 joke is that you'll have. It's not a joke. The reality is that you'll have. You know, ten ten jobs that we couldn't write job descriptions for today. I was just reading a, a job description for a prompt engineer, for people who write prompts in AI. Well, five years ago, if I would have said prompt engineer, you know, you might've thought I was someone who held up cue cards, you know, for a, for a theater production or, or something. So, so how do you prepare students for, uh, for the jobs of the, of the future? Uh, uh, you know, again, maybe using that omni-channel metaphor, a, a new fluidity between the workplace and uh, and the classroom, I think that will also serve our students very well. Well, serving students very well seems to be the um, underlying philosophy that you started this interview with us on, Anne, and you've um, traversed so many different um, paths along the way in your journey. Um, we wish you very well in the journey that you're now on in walking the talk at Hunter College and at, and at CUNY. But for being such a, you, you said it, what leaders need to do is to ask questions and listen well. And I can see you having done that through your career. It's been a pleasure to ask you questions and, and to listen to you. So thank you very much for being such an inspiring guest with us here on the HeadX podcast. Thank you so much. I enjoyed every minute and uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Well, there you go, Sue. That was Anne Kirshner from Hunter College in New York. I wondered what you thought of Anne's primary messages there and particularly what you, how you think they apply to an Australian context in your view for all of the things that you at OES see that you're doing with your Australian university partners? Well, I think Anne was definitely um, what she was sharing about the experience of the uh, American university is very much the experience that we we saw in Australia, where head off the heels of of responding and and to the COVID challenge is we were then universities have then um, had to respond very very quickly to generative AI. Both of these have given us great opportunities, but you know it's challenging that these large shifts have happened one after another. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought Anne's, Anne's summation of the impact of it as the left hook and the right hook, I think, was very much spot on. Are we on the canvas or have we all got up off the floor and ready to go again yet, you think? I think people are in varying different states. But, yeah, definitely there's some exciting things we, we're seeing in the generative AI space, for example, 
um, think we're seeing this as a wonderful opportunity um, in terms of a leveller for education. But I think we've got some real challenges there, Martin. Um, we have to prepare students for jobs that, and careers that haven't even emerged yet. Um, and they're going to look quite differently in the next three to five years. And that's the typical time that a student takes to, to study. And so how do you develop the curriculum so that it really is fit for purpose? Running alongside that as sort of a bit of a, uh, an important parallel channel is how do you assure the learning of that your students are doing? And I know, you know, that's something that Texa and our Australian universities are grappling with. And throw into the mix then are wonderful academics who have had the left hook and the right hook and are now expected to evolve yet again. And so I think there's some real challenges there. But I think what Anne was talking about in terms of omnichannel, we conceptualise it as omnichannel in terms of working with industry. And she had that great example of Hunter bringing in practitioners to, um, for technology to basically kind of expose the students. Because, you know, that old adage, you know, it's much harder to be what you can't see. If you're being exposed to it, then you're more likely to, to, to respond to it. I think that's the way, as universities, we can blend a lot more with innovative companies and technologies. That's the way we leapfrog into the Gen AI space. So how do you, how do you think our Australian universities are progressing down that path? Then you, you've you've talked about the omni-channel concept, and indeed, you you before the interview with Anne, you you sowed the seed of that in all of our minds in this episode of of how important that concept is. But you're taking that further in thinking about that being a means of really embedding ourselves as institutions with tech company partners i assume your meaning but also with employers of our graduates to use technology to help give us the skills for the future for our workforce of jobs that we haven't even seen yet how far down that journey do you think the leading edge of australian university practices i think we've got pockets who are thinking really seriously about this and 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 even even in the the whole idea about how you assure learning that side of it you know we're starting to see some really good thinking and Texas released a paper recently to, to sort of stimulate some thought in that space. But I think in terms of um, embedding generative AI, I think that's very nascent. But I really believe that as universities, we need to be on the front foot with this and not just from, from a university survival perspective, but from more of the perspective that actually the tech world needs the thought leadership of universities front and centre at the table. We don't need another social experiment where we just kind of expose everyone to technology and let's see how that works out. We actually need this, not just as a means from a, from a business point of view, but from an ethical point of view, from a social a society point of view from an impact point of view and and um you know you mentioned texture and a paper from texa there i texa gets all asked to do so many different things doesn't it and we we have a an interesting mindset in australia about how we look at regulation i think and and setting rules for for these things do you think we're do you think we're getting the balance right as a sector and as a nation in thinking about putting a appropriate checks and balances in how we're using some of that new technology but also using our best brains and innovative capacity to explore and to, um, you know, push the boundaries on how we can use that in our practice. Where do you think we're getting the balance on that and have we got it right? Yeah, I'm hearing more about the checks and balances than pushing the boundaries. So, uh, yeah, I would love for us to be less concerned. We have to be concerned about the checks and balances. But I think we also need to make sure that we are 
I, I would like I would like us as universities to be pushing the new use cases to be happening in this space and, and what can be done. And I think that's that's really important because it's things like things that we've always wanted to do that were hard to do, like doing really good personalized learning, really good adaptive learning, really good uh, employability skills, really lower level thinking. And it's forcing us as university to say, what is learning all about? What's the really important human layer? And what's the layer that we can, for want a better word, outsource to generative AI? Yeah, I, I think that's um, that's a really good point. And I mean, Anne makes the point, I think, in the interview about um, needing the right sort of environments where you can experiment and explore, be prepared to fail. Um, fail's not a great word in a university, is it? She said no one likes to get the F. Um, everyone likes to feel that they're performing all of the time. But really to push the boundaries in this, we're going to need to try things that we don't need to do, that, mm. that we don't know how to do that we've mm. not done before and really embrace new ideas and new technologies and new thinking to try things out. Is, is, is that what you're, is that what it's feeling like to you? Our regulatory environment is encouraging of us and that you're at liberty with the partnerships that you at OES form with your university partners to really throw yourself into, or, or do you wish it was more like that? We're not there yet, Martin. Um, Policy has a very valid place, uh, as does you know that that it's it's critical, and and it's 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 basically the operationalization of strategy. But I I think maybe our, a lot of our policies in the university higher ed sector are are founded on a world that is rapidly changing, and we need to change. We need to change so that policies are more supportive of online students. We need to if you're going to have omnichannel, and 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 pointed this out. It's the policies and the structures that have to be negotiated, even though everyone pretty much agrees that it's probably the best experience for the student. And I love the way that Anne framed everything around the student experience. She certainly did. And look, um, one, we're, we're having this conversation now at the end of what's been, you know, I can remember being with you in Canberra at the start of this year at the UA conference just after... At that conference, Mary O'Kane had launched the discussion paper for the university's accord. It seems like a generation ago already, but um, there's been so much going on in trying to rethink our Australian higher education system. And that comment you've just made about the primacy of the student experience and that applying to more equity groups really come to the fore, hasn't it, in mm. the interim mm. report and mm. all the debate. We're not far over off a final report being mentioned yet, but what do you think about the prominence of technology in the thinking that's going on in that reshaping of policy and setting a vision for 30 years into the future of what Australian higher education might look like? I, I don't think we've probably paid enough attention to technology in terms of... I, I, I think the Accord will be broad enough that technology can underpin. Um, but I don't think they're doing they're explicitly, there's probably been as much airtime given to that as needed. But if you think about the shifts that have happened at, at the UA conference, it was a bit, it was kind of still early days, generative AI, you know, in terms of hitting mainstream. I just think we've just had this quantum leap. Um, and it was, there's always a bit of hype. But I think this, you know, as Anne said, you don't have to buy software, you ask a question. And I think this is, again, where higher ed really comes in. We, it's a bit like when we moved to, you know, we had the data analytics and where it's the explosion of data and, and suddenly we're awash with data. But what is, what is, what is the important questions we need to ask of data? And, and 
you know, wh why do we need this? And I think it's like that with the generative AI. If you're going to ask questions, what are the important questions to ask? What are the important things that we want generative AI to do? Asking questions is um, something that Anne described as likening to a key part of learning, didn't she? And a key part of leadership. And I don't know how much across the detail you were of something that I raised with her there. I, I was staggered when I heard it. The, the University of California system has often been held up. Glyn Davis was a great um, advocate for the University of California system. Um, and many other leaders of the high, Australian higher education scene have been. It's It's been a hotbed of innovation, of learning, of pushing the boundaries, of doing things differently, of the leading edge of change. So for us recently to learn that coming out of its pandemic experiences, where it's seen a greater number of its students than it had anticipated form in that omni-channel opportunity that they might have had, the chance to graduate with a fully online degree has led to the University of California system precluding that from being possible in the future. Yeah. What, yeah. what does that tell you about, about how one of our most prestigious and most innovative systems is thinking about what questions to ask, yeah. how, how to learn and how to embrace technology and thinking about the future. As, as, as someone with a prominent role in a company like I, OES, you presumably have some views on that yeah it, it, it's an, it's an unusual position to hold and we have seen some of our own universities in Australia um, very much in the undergraduate space moving more strongly to a on-campus model and making that and making that a very kind of strong differentiator I'd be interested in the demographic and I'm, and I'm probably not close enough to the demographics of that university for me to understand. I, I can see the argument for the school leaver as as needing the networking and the whole experience. And, and remembering too, the American system, you often live away from home in colleges. So it, it's an immersive experience. So I, I can see that. I can also see that universities have invested a lot in that model. So they're possibly, possibly going to be less keen. But once you move beyond the school leaver to the adult learner, the regional student, the remote student, the busy working student, the non-traditional student, I think it's a very different story. And we need to connect them. We need to do all the things that are really important in a on-campus experience. You know, we need to, and it's not, it's not about replicating them, it's translating them. How, how, how do you give the student that experience, that connection, that ability to learn from each other and make it as seamless as possible? I think yeah. I think that's really critical. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm surprised, but it would be interesting to see their demographics. Yeah, well, you, you, you sort of dissected what the nature of the demographics is there in terms of school leavers and all of those non-traditional students. We do, of course, have a university's accord, which is committing us to grow for our provision of skills from the future, largely from that non-school leaver and underrepresented groups. And look, neither of us have got the data in front of us, but I'm sure we've both been keeping an eye on some of the trends that are happening in Australia and around the world. The, my reading of the data, my reading of the data, I'll just tell you what I what I think is that um, we're seeing a real challenge for domestic students from school leaver groups 
and from non-school leaver groups what yeah. having the time to attend having the resources and having the the trust in the relevance of the products to attend on-campus learning experiences. All the numbers coming out of the, the UK and, and the US seem to be pointing to numbers being under threat from the underrepresented yeah. groups and any growth that there is being being increasingly on online. I don't, I don't know that we're close to an omni-channel by Anne's definition, and we're probably even further from what you're, you've described we need, which is the omni-channel in partnership with employers and tech companies. But we seem to be a long way short of what um, a 30-year time horizon for a future vision of a Australian higher education system might might see as being the priorities that we should work towards. Is, is that a, how, you, how you're seeing it? Look, I think a, th- I think a 30-year vision is very hard. And I, it, it's, a, it's a great ambitious statement isn't a 30-year vision and and but but a 30-year vision is is hard at, at this time uh given the the state of flux that we're in so um yeah i th- i think i think we have some challenges i think i think this accord has it could be commended for being uh very much consultative went out with stakeholders and 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 Possibly that's been challenging too, in the sense that they've had so many different views now to take into account. But I think its emphasis on equity students it it makes good sense. It makes good sense from an ethical point of view, from a society point of view, and also from a workforce point of view, which we know is important for us to keep skilling our workforce, particularly through higher education. Well, you're you're saying it's um really hard to look thirty years ahead. It's quite hard to look a month or two ahead at the moment to what that final report might say, isn't it? But I'm <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure we're going to have a lot of people very interested in what it's got to say about individual institutions and how they stand to gain or otherwise from it. I hope we have as much interest in what it says for us about how we're going to bring about continued innovation and change in our sector and meet the needs of those different underrepresented and equity groups. And I really hope that, as you as you said a little bit earlier, the the relatively um, underdeveloped thinking towards technology that so far has pervaded the the debate around the accord gets a little bit more opportunity to be explored beyond the end of this year and as the the next thirty years unfold. Because it feels very clear to me that the the sector that and the society and the economy and the um, ecosystem that we're part of is only going to get further speeding up of technological advancement rather than it going slowing down. But that's all we've got time for this week on Headaches.